Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with all the latest on the Socceroos and Matildas with Willem van Dender and shortly. And in breaking news, congratulations to our former ITN journo turned pundit, Derek Dyson, who won't be joining us throughout the show. He is now the proud father of Henry Patrick Dyson. Not quite two days old as we record. You won't have to be an eagle-eared listener to know that. One of our two resident gunners has proudly named his lad after two Arsenal players who gave him so much joy in all those years at Highbury. On behalf of your mates at box to box and our listeners, we wish you, Derek, your wife, Sarah, who did all the hard work, of course, and little sister Maeve, all the happiness in the world for the many, many years ahead. Now, while our mate Del takes some time off with the family, it's on with the show and we'll start with Edge and Willem having a chat with ESPN and the Guardian's Joey Lynch on a range of topics including the victory with a glimmer of hope in the men's A-League. That might be a little optimistic but it's there mathematically and some thoughts on the Socceroos returning home for the first time since the World Cup against the world number 41 Ecuador and the Matildas fine-tuning their prep for the World Cup on home soil with matches against England and Scotland in Europe early next month. Then just as we're celebrating the return of an Aussie to the Premier League Harry Sutas Foxes are skating on the thinnest of relegation edges and had it not been for a fortunate point and other results going their way Leicester City would be firmly in the drop zone as we speak. Naturally there's no one else we'd talk to about our favourite Midlands side our mate from the Athletic, Rob Tanner, of course, and we will wrap it up with stoppage time. So, Edge, uh, busy show as always. Great news for Derek, and uh, I, um, I'm just surprised he didn't go with the Thierry in there somewhere. Well, he's um, close enough, isn't he? But uh, congratulations <laughs> to Derek and anybody who thought that uh, uh, Derek was um, not biased, <laughs> not impartial. Just think about what he named his son. Uh, Henry Patrick, obviously, uh, in celebration of uh, the great Terry Henry and Patrick Vieira. So, um, well done to Derek and his wife and his family. It's just fantastic news. Um, we all remember those days, don't we, Robert? There's such a special mm-hmm. moment when the kids mm-hmm. are born, and um, and uh, I know that they'll be having some beautiful family time. And Derek will be changing lots of nappies. But um, for me, um, some big news out of FIFA's uh, international. Um, Confederation uh, annual meeting, and uh, we might ask uh, Willem to fill us in on some of the details. Yeah, uh, great to be with you for another week, gents. The FIFA Congress was in Rwanda uh, this week. Gianni Infantino has confirmed visits Saudi won't sponsor the Women's World Cup, but added that he thought the controversy was a storm in a teacup. Uh, he was reappointed unopposed for another term, it should be added. Uh, at the Congress. He also labelled Australia's trade partnership with Saudi Arabia a double standard. Separately, prize money for the tournament will stand at 229 million Australian. That's triple what it was just two editions ago in 2015. Players Union FIFA Pro hard at work to make sure that FIFA guarantee at least 30% of that goes to the players. Uh, Michael, big week uh, in Rwanda. We're going to discuss the Club World Cup plans in a moment. But for now, and then I'll come to you on this as well, Rob, a, a thought on this Visit Saudi saga at its conclusion. Yeah, well, obviously, um, that's the first time I've, I've ever seen FIFA change their minds. Obviously, they didn't announce the sponsorship, but it was uh, putting the flag up the pole. And then the reaction from Australia and New Zealand, in particular, the leadership within the women's game was um, resolute. And that's probably a wise decision from 
uh, Infantino and FIFA, Rob Gilbert. What do you think? I agree 100%. The thing that, that just gets me um, with with these uh, announcements that Johnny Infantino so routinely puts his foot in his mouth with is he says uh, he, he gets so defensive when when he's been proven to have made uh, um, or at least spearheaded a poor decision and, and defends himself to the hilt. The fact that he doesn't understand what it was all about and calling the trade sanctions a double standard. The, the reality of it is that at its very purest, this is a Women's World Cup and there are all sorts of current issues as much as there are changes occurring in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that the voice of the women, Johnny, the women in this game demanded that it not happen. So why don't you just graciously accept that, go back to the negotiating table and then take some time rather than point the finger and be all defensive about it. I, I just find that for a bloke who is clearly an intelligent person to, to so consistently uh, not have the capacity to read the room and and make himself look a bit of a goose um he um it just surprised me but then again hey with the uh, uh the the, the hist history of leaders of fifa over the journey why should we be surprised nice to put that one behind us going forward i think fifa also announced the access principles for its revamped club world cup to be held every four years from 2025. It's going to be a 32-team tournament. It's going to welcome the winners of Continental Club comps from the previous four years with additional places awarded to clubs in certain confederations. So we can expect to see the winners of the European Champions League from 2021 to 24, as well as Europe will have more slots, like with the World Cup, it'll be weighted that way. Uh, some other teams in and around uh, the, the top echelon there. The champions of the Copa Libertadores from that period will be there. Uh, the Asian champions will be there, although we may not have more than the four allocated slots. We'll see how it all pans out. Uh, but Michael, I know you're particularly pumped up about this. It does mean the depth of the annual Club World Cup as we know. I don't think too many will be too upset about that. That'll finish up at the end of this year. Uh, FIFA will uh, develop a means for some inter-confederation club football in the meantime. But this, I guess, has been the one thing in the calendar that uh, has been a bit of a little bit of room for growth, or a huge room for growth, really, in the uh, in the international football calendar. Well, this is a new frontier for international club football. It's going to be massive. Um, Twelve teams from Europe, six teams from South America, four teams from Asia, four teams from Africa, four teams from North America, one from Oceania and the host nations. So um, unbelievable um, tournament this will be. I think it will be um, a great fall for the Men's World Cup. It's going to happen every four years, as you say. 2025 is the first edition and there's already teams being allocated. So there's nine teams already have qualified because of uh, previous continental Championships. So Al Ali from Egypt to the African champions, Al Halal from Saudi Arabia, the Asian champions, Chelsea, um, uh, Flamingo out of Brazil, Monteri, a famous club out of Mexico, um, Palmeiras out of Brazil, Real Madrid out of Spain, the Seattle, Seattle Sounders from CONCACAF, the finalists in the CONCACAF Champions League, and, and Wydad AC out of Morocco, the African finalists as well. So they've already qualified. Um, I just think this tournament has enormous potential and legs, and not many people are really tuned into what it means. It's going to be like a World Cup, but for uh, international teams. And when you've got the big daddies of South America, Europe, and some of these big um, uh, Asian teams, which will be well-resourced, in particular the ones out of North Africa and the Middle East, I think this is a recipe for the new frontier of international club football and a real challenger in terms of financial, where the money flows in the game, to the European Champions League. 
Nice. It's going to be good. going to be good. going to be exciting and one that we'll certainly cover in the years leading up to it. Uh, the big news domestically, Canberra and Auckland have been granted preferred market status for the APL's first round of expansion. That's the first under their leadership, ideally to enter the competition in 2024-25. It comes as part of wider plans to see the number of men's and women's clubs rise to 16 within three years. They've also abandoned the then FFA's 2018 uh, process where it was an open tender. Uh, Danny Townsend this week described these two clubs as clubs in a box, basically. We're going to grow them here and then we're going to find uh, licensees. Uh, the licenses are going to cost $25 million each. So obviously they need some coin. Uh, that is a lot. I think those last two that went to Western United and MacArthur were around the 15 to $18 million mark. Uh, that does, though, include a stake in the APL itself. Rob, four pillars uh, that these two clubs were decided upon. Potential fan base. Uh, where that sits within current clubs, uh, stadia, and the uh, the expanding footprint. So what do you make of the decision to get rid of the tender process and basically just anoint two clubs to come in? Yeah, I guess the, the process uh, that you would normally uh, go through to uh, to make a choice uh, inevitably leads a, a lot of disappointed uh, stakeholders in, involved in, in uh, um, the eventual outcome. We saw that long-winded process in the, in the last round and it left a, a lot of noses out of joint. So I guess if that's a positive, that, um, that that's the one that you need to draw. Uh, insofar as the clubs themselves, I suppose I'll focus on the, the club that, that I've got the most knowledge of and interest in, or at least the city, and that is, of course, Canberra, uh, being a, a close watcher of rugby league and, and rugby union over the journey. Uh, the city of Canberra, the nation's capital, of course, uh, um, is uh, one of the, the hotbeds of women's football in this country, and uh, uh, the Canberra Raiders and the, and the Brumbies uh, are successful, continuously successful sites, which very rarely drop off uh, uh, from the, the, the uh, at least the finals and uh, the pointy end of their respective competitions. So I think from a Canberra point of view, they, they just need to get that one right because the last thing we need is a, a club to, to join a competition and, uh, and, and sort of bobble around the bottom end of, of the ladder. At least the one thing you can be sure of is that you're going to get crowds. And, and that's one thing I think with both of these expansion sides, Edge, that, um, that the APL would have firmly had in their sites, that they've seen um, that MacArthur and Western United in particular uh, not have that capacity to draw uh, the kind of ten to 15,000 crowds that we need to, to build up the atmosphere in the stands. I'm just a little bit underwhelmed, Rob, because I think if Western United and MacArthur, who barely get enough people to, you know, there's more game, more people going to some of these NPL games than uh, than A League matches involving those clubs, and uh, you know, Auckland, I'm not terribly optimistic about, and Canberra too. I mean, um, have we not learnt that uh, it's best to have um, clubs with communities, and um, you know, this whole promotion relegation connecting in the pyramid is lost. I understand that. Football Australia weren't uh, consulted about this. So, yeah, I've got a lot of underwhelming questions and I, I just think the track record of Western United and um, and MacArthur in particular, you know, brand new brands, brand new clubs, no communities to support them, that just brings deflation. I think, Canberra's, I think Canberra's slightly separate. This has been uh, the bid that was part of that 2018 uh, process, still led by Michael Caggiano, uh, the license will apparently absorb uh, the existing entity in Canberra United. Have you been to Bruce Stadium with them? Pardon me? Have you been to Bruce Stadium? I haven't been to Bruce Stadium. 
Um, it's a relic from the 1980s. It's not a good stadium. Look, I've been there, Edge, and, 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 and so far as comparing it to, to um, I mean, it's a rectangular stadium and, and it, it's, it needs to be upgraded, but it's, it's not that bad. I mean, it, it, it generates a great atmosphere. The Brumbies and the Raiders play there. So, God, it's, it's, um, it's better than some of the alternatives that there are out there. Well, I don't think it's better than in – it's probably better than Perth, but I don't think it's better than Adelaide, Amy Park, um, Allianz. Well, no, of course it's not. But If it was a Tuggeranong United coming in as an existing state league side? Well, I just think there's 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 established markets with uh, supporter bases that have been ignored again, you know, and um, I just think it's an error that they make on a continual basis because they will ignore the the traditional established clubs, and I, I think it's a mistake. I, I agree with you there. It's a, yeah. yeah, it's a separate it's a separate body now. I don't think we have to give the APL their due because I'm still fuming over the grand final decision, but this is separate to the FFA making these decisions in 2018. Yeah, I know, I know it's separate, but again, it's two new clubs, brand new brands. Yes, yeah. they might go into markets that have potential, but um, they're not existing brands, you know. So that, that's that's my question. You know, that's my question. Maybe Socceroos. I'm being hard on Canberra. No, no. Maybe I'm being hard on Canberra. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. The Socceroos are in action uh, for the first time post-World Cup this week. We're going to chat to Joey about that shortly. Uh, Aaron Moy is going to be missing. He's been sitting out with Celtic with back soreness. In comes Ryan Strain. Uh, quite a few exciting names in this squad. I'm going to throw two names at each of you. I would like just a short line, uh, Rob. Keeping in mind that Google's definition of the opposite of premonition is instructive foresight. Joe Gaffey. Yeah, I think uh, we were fortunate to jag Joe last week on the show. If you didn't get the chance, have a listen to Joe Willem and Edge did a, a great job having a yarn to him on the eve of his selection. So, look, I think a very clever selection by Football Australia here. Joe Gauchi is a Maltese descent and he spent um, some of his formative years in New Zealand. So he was a, a rising tall keeper, very talented, very athletic uh, and uh, and playing a, a huge role in Adelaide United's run of 10 games unbeaten that you've got to strike while the iron's hot and I think that's one thing that Graham Arnold has had the capacity to do and and make that decision to get him in the squad and get him capped hopefully so that we can take that um, that jeopardy off the table so well done Joe you've earned it Connor Metcalf of course uh, uh, he uh, is another oh, one of those players well I did well, yeah, you told me. Anyway, so Conor McCuff obviously uh, been capped five times and uh, has has proven himself uh, capable at that level. Twenty three year old, good, uh, uh, you know, good size six footer midfielder, central midfielder, playing with Jackson Irvine at St Pauli after uh, you know playing uh, five seasons for Melbourne City. It's great to see him back in the fold as well and uh, and getting getting his uh, uh, yeah getting his selection uh, after after earning his stripes in the Bundesliga too. We're under some real-time pressure here, Edge. Alexander Robertson. Well, I mean, uh, he's had enormous uh, reps on him, uh, been involved in the England junior setup, and uh, if we can pinch him off the palms, let's do it. And train on Nestori Irankunda. Well, um, he's there because he's uh, obviously his backflips have made an impression. Uh, I think everybody uh, is excited about uh, Nestori Irankunda and uh, the potential that he has. So, yeah, take him along. Um, give Garam Quall a bit of a foot up the backside um, and um, and uh, see what he can do in training. I'm, I'm sure he'll impress. I'm always just slightly worried with these train-ons, Edge, because they don't always work. You've got to remember our 06 World Cup squad is <laughs> fated and loved as they come. Who were the train-ons? Christian Sarkis and Kaz Patafta. Oh, wow. 
they didn't. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Did you have to bring that up? Did you really? Have well, to bring I remember that up? Christian Saki's most famous moment was in that. Uh, grand final where victory beat Adelaide United 6-0 that Archie scored five and Christian scored the other one. And he kissed John Howard on the head on the podium. He did too. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's wrap it up there, boys. Uh, I'm going to that game on Tuesday night in Melbourne. Looking forward to it. So uh, it's been a while since I've seen the, the green and gold uh, play in uh, in action. So it might not be quite the same as watching them in Qatar, but I'll be there in the flesh. All right, I'm going to take a, a little break while Edge, you and Willem have a yarn to our good mate Joey Lynch. Uh, uh, let's see what he can make of the victory. Is Tony Popovich sort of turning it around? Uh, is there a chance for the rest of the season or is this about uh, uh, getting set for the following season and of course uh, uh, find out what Joey thinks about the Matildas and the Socceroos ahead of their uh, international dates over the coming week. That is all next on box to box Hey hey, it's time to talk about our friends at Chemist Warehouse and you can stock up and save right now at Chemist Warehouse. There's INC plant-based amino blend mango kiwi fruit. I talked about this last week, Willem. Did you get down and get the 300 grams for the 31.49 price? I did, and I plowed through the 300 grams in record time. We'll be back for more this week. I was thinking you were looking a bit bigger as, uh, as we did the show this week. Well done. Well, if you run out of that, look at the guns on him. Bondi Protein Co-Vegan and Keto 1 Kilo range $37.99. you got plenty of choices there, Willem. Sounds good. Edge, you'll have to sample some of these when you're home. Which one uh, takes your fancy? I like the kiwi fruit mango uh, option. I think that sounds pretty good. No, I'm not talking about well, a slushy or some, uh... or some ice cream, Edge. It's, <laughs> it's protein, mate. Well, I just had, I just had a mango slushy before. It's pretty good. Ah, see, you. Uh, I can see it staining your T-shirt as we record. Uh, uh, if you sell it to you after you bag the Auckland expansion bit for the kiwis. <laughs> yeah, big trouble. There's Panadol Rapid Fast Pain Relief, 40 caplets, $8.49. Listerine, fresh burst, or zero alcohol, one litre mouthwash, ten ninety nine. dollars Rob, with all the garlic I eat over here. Yeah, all right. Well, I'll get you, get you a box uh, and uh, keep that breath of yours fresh. Rhino caught hay fever and allergy original. We're into the very early stages of what's going to be that hay fever season. 240 doses for $29.99. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings. They are every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Oh, Melbourne Victory have enjoyed the season from hell off the pitch and haven't fared much better on it, but get their slim hopes of a late season run alive with a 2-0 win over the top four Mariners on Sunday. Joey Lynch would have attended more matches than the vast bulk of their fan base this season. So who better to welcome back to the show for a summation of the club on and off. I know we're just going to turn attention to the Socceroos and Matildas shortly as well. But for now, Joey, welcome, my friend. Oh, thanks for having me along. It's yeah, It hasn't been too much uh, company at Melbourne Victory Games, especially... Uh, as of late, but I guess it match, matches the press conferences. A bit difficult to get media attention down here in Melbourne, so I've been enjoying my cute one-on-ones with Tony Popovich every week. I want to ask you about Popper. It looks unlikely they will play finals. Six points out of the six with a game in hand, but they've only got 70 minutes of that game and they'll start a, a goal down, which is quite bizarre. Uh, the off-field aspect plays a role in all of this, of course. They're hard to separate, but in isolation, have you been able to make a judgment on Popovich's performance as a manager this season? Well, he'd be the first to admit that it hasn't worked. Uh, certainly it hasn't worked as well as it did last year and it hasn't worked as well as it has numerous times throughout his tenure. He has spoken after numerous games about needing to find the answer and not being able to find that. Um, I think his latest experiment with 
uh, playing Fernando Romero and Bruno Fornaroli up front was working well until Fernando Romero copped a red card and will now miss their next game through suspension. But the problem generally has been that he hasn't been able to find the answers that he needs to do. There's always been questions about diminishing returns with Tony Popovich's system. He had a lot of success at the Wanderers, but then you look at the Perth Glory stint, Premiership his first season, just scraping into finals his second. Now we see great first season with Melbourne Victory, not a great second season with Melbourne Victory because he does have a certain play style. He does operate when his teams are the reactive. They have less of the ball. They're able to counter. They're able to soak up pressure, which is what they were able to do against the Mariners and worked out great. But when they aren't, when his sides haven't been given the ability to do that, they haven't performed well and he hasn't been able to find the answers consistently at least this season. Impossible to ignore the 25,000 empty green seats at Amy Park yesterday and at pretty much every victory game since the December derby boil over. We're a national show, but we live in Melbourne. You work in Melbourne. It can be hard to gauge everyone's opinion on these things. Your sort of hardcore North Terrace member is going to have a different opinion to your, your match-going parents who take kids along. But... If you do move in certain circles on Twitter, as an example, it's impossible to ignore the correlation between the APL's grand final decision and the the collapse of victories, match-going fans. And it was put, for me, into even sharper perspective this week. When you see 28,000 at the Sydney Derby on Saturday night, the game looks healthy and, and thriving up there. But looks like Melbourne has, yeah, it feels very much like Melbourne's been sort of left behind for the minute. So what are your thoughts? It feels like there has been a perfect storm uh, working against Melbourne Victory fans this season. It's it's pretty much a... There are numerous reasons why a fan might not want to attend football matches. And unfortunately for Melbourne Victory, a few of those have arisen this season. Obviously, uh, the Christmas derby uh, violence and then the sanctions that have resulted from that have put a lot of people off. The APL's grand final decision has left a lot of Melbourne Victory fans feeling... Alienated, taken for granted. They were the the standard bearer for A-League's fans for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, grand final being sold out from underneath them. There is a sense of betrayal there and a sense of why do I bother? Um, victory, flat out not playing well. Inevitably, when your teams aren't playing well and your teams aren't winning football games, you're going to see fans uh, drift away, uh, sort of... These poor results are also maybe a bit of a refrain from the, not last season, but the seasons before that, where we saw a lot of Victory fans feeling alienated from the club and questioning the club's motives and um, their priorities. They're coming back again. There's been, well, I'm there every week and there are, for the fans that remain, there are a chance of Anthony DiPietro get out of our club every game. So there is anger against the administrators and the higher-ups of Melbourne Victory um, as well. And footy season's back as well here in Melbourne, AFL. That means something as well. So there just has been, you know, a series of factors that have just gone into alienating the Melbourne Victory fans. And I didn't even mention as well the sale of the club. Now, it's not complete yet. Triple Seven Triple Seven Partners remains a minority owner, but there are some Melbourne Victory fans as well that liked being Australian-owned, that liked being Victorian-owned, and now they don't like that direction of the club alongside everything else. So sort of like a perfect storm. It's not, you know, an existential blow to the club or anything. They can fix this, but right now it's just, a pylon, so to speak. 
Joey, uh, we might take a tangent and talk about the Socceroos. It's a big week for the Socceroos, um, the national team with their homecoming after the last couple of years when they've been away from Australia. Um, and just with a bit of a victory tangent, when I look at the names of the players that are now um, sort of being brought into the squad, um, Brandon Barillo, Jordan Boss, Joe Gauchi, Connor Metcalf, Aidan O'Neill, Alexander Robertson, Ryan Strain, and the train on um, inclusion, Nestori Irukunda. There's no uh, Melbourne Victory uh, players in that group, which sort of says that even from a development perspective, the the, the Socceroos, uh, yeah, the, the, the Victory um, representation. So, yeah, just what do you think about that group of players that are, are brought into the Socceroos for this uh, upcoming um, Ecuador uh, friendlies? And uh, the Asian Cup's only around the corner, really. I think, yeah, first down the victory thing, I think need to acknowledge that Paul Lizzo was close to a call-up, I think. Uh, Graham Arnold did um, name-drop him unprompted multiple times at the announcement of the Ecuador series, and also we've seen Nicholas D'Agostino become a Socceroo whilst with Melbourne victory before moving on to Viking. Um, but on the squad itself, it's a curious mix because this this series was just supposed to be a welcome home, everybody come and cheer the Socceroos for what they did in Qatar. And then you start seeing players get injured and can't come along. Um, your Matt Leckies, your Jamie McLaren, your Aaron Moyes et al. Um, Danny Vukovic retires. Um, Joel King and Frank Karantic are just flat out left out of the squad, um, as far as I can tell. I mean, Joel King played on the weekend, so he's obviously fit. Um, but so it begins to take on these more dynamics of, well, yeah, are we now beginning to see the phases of moving towards that Asian Cup? Because Graham Arnold has talked about how this, the the slate is now clear. Everybody's working towards uh, winning a place in that squad and his sense of loyalty. He did want to give the players that were in Qatar first crack in his words at it. But it's definitely an intriguing squad that he's called up, to, especially those players that he's called up to fill the gaps. Jordy Boss... I'm a massive fan of Jordy Boss. I've been watching him um, ever since he was in Melbourne City's Academy as a 17, 18-year-old playing out in some really dodgy pitches at NPL 2 level, and he's always had that talent, and it's great to see him come on. Joe Couchy, I think, has been he's been christened as a Socceroo in waiting for a few years now, um, and, I, and probably the fact that he can play for Malta and New Zealand as well probably hastened that call up alongside a sweet, given that you know Paul Lizzo and especially Lawrence Thomas, I think, could mount um, significant cases for inclusion as well. Aidan O'Neill has come on in great guns um, so far this year. Um, so he very much in that base of the midfield option, which is it is a important. Uh, position in Graham Arnold's system. Um, it's good to see him come in and get a slight smash of that. And yeah, Brandon Borello deserves the call up based on his form. Obviously, he's not young, um, but if you were going to call up an A League's player based on form, it'd be someone like him. Um, Nestor as well, excitement machine pick, concerns around maturity, which have been um, repeated by Carl Vitt several times throughout this season, which potentially why he wasn't just named a flat-out member of the squad to try to keep him grounded. But um, it, it is... I'm, I'm missing people, but it, Ryan Strain has been performing well um, in Scotland. But it is... It's an intro... And Robertson, of course, another one. Prop, let's face it. Robertson has a lot of potential, but has been called up because he's eligible for three other nations as well, and you sort of got to lock him in. He could be a 
fine Socceroo on his own merit, but we can't ignore that elephant's in the room and he's got a ton of potential. I'm really excited to see what he can develop into. But yeah, it's an intriguing squad, I'd say. It is intriguing. And obviously with a, with a view to the Asian Cup next January and February, we go there off the back of a, an amazing uh, World Cup and therefore you would suggest that um, the expectations of the Australian football community is that we will go deep into that tournament. So are you expecting uh, a little bit of wholesale change or do you think when some of these more senior players that are missing uh, from this program, uh, you know, uh, when, when, the, when, the, when the heat's on, they'll, they'll come back into the squad. What, what are you expecting out of the Asian Cup squad next year? I'm expecting a few of those experienced heads to definitely return, the likes of Aaron Moy. Um, who, let's face it, Aaron Moy has been playing really well in Scotland with Celtic. Um, he'll come back in. Matthew Leckie. One of the soccer's best at the World Cup was A-League's, amongst the A-League's best before he went down with injury. He'll come back in. Jamie McLaren, he's scoring goals right now. I know he doesn't have some, he doesn't have a lot of fans, especially for his form in international games, but he does what he does very well. He gets into positions. He's a poacher. And right now, there isn't exactly a glut of Australian number nines banging down that, down that door to replace him either. I expect he'll come back in, but I think it's around the edges where we'll see these changes go made. I'm expecting that the starting 11 at the Asian Cup will look very similar to what we saw in Qatar. However, it's those players around those edges, you know, it's the backup left back with Joel King failing to fire at club land where somebody like a Geordie Boss comes in with Fran Karacic being left out of this squad and uh, Nathaniel Atkinson struggling for consistent minutes in Scotland. Is that somewhere like a right where Orion Strain comes in, considering that right now, if we're going based on the soccer starting right back based on the last two games, it's actually Milos Degenek. Um, a nominal centre-back. So that's going to be, you know, I think, so what I think we're going to see over the next few months is, especially heading into that England-friendly friendly at Wembley as well, we'll see the more experienced heads in the starting eleven, um, but we'll see um, maybe some changes around the periphery, those players 15 through 23 in the squad. Absolutely. We haven't obviously mentioned uh, Garan Kuala, who obviously made a very, very good impression at the World Cup too in his uh, cameos off the bench. But uh, Joey, um, we wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be uh, fair not to bring in a Matilda's question. Uh, we know that you um, cover the women's game expertly. Um, I'm just interested, um, Claire Hunt made a very big impact in the last Matilda's um, program of, of matches. She came out of the A-League W competition and uh, slotted in perfectly and made a very big impression on Tony Gustafsson. He singled her out in a number of press conferences about her uh, ability to adapt. Um, I'm just wondering whether the brains trust that the Matildas might have overlooked some of the A-League W form because of a perceived perception of what the quality of the competition is. And is there any more nuggets in the A-League W competition that could be plucked and uh, make a late uh, run in for World Cup selection? Well, I think we know that throughout the window, Tony Gustafsson has spoken about advising players to move overseas and challenge themselves at a higher level. And I mean, if you're starting and playing week in and week out in, in the WSL in England, of course, that's going to be better for your development than the A-League women's. The problem is, of course, not a lot of, not every player that goes over to Europe or like the WSL will play week in and week out. But to move on to the question of players in the A-League women's that could be plucked out, 
I think the most obvious one that jumps out to me, and it's a player that would would be in the squad if she had been able to stay fit, is Holly McNamara. Um, ever since she's come back from her ACL injury, she's been great for Melbourne City. Obviously, there's still a bit of rust. There's still a bit of readjusting to the pace of the game, owning those instincts. There was one incident in um, Melbourne City's 1-1 draw with Sydney FC on the weekend where she's breaking forward. She's got um, Cote Rojas to her right, and you can just see the timing's a bit off. She holds the ball maybe a second or two longer than she should have. And by the time she plays Cote Rojas, Cote Rojas is at an angle and shoots into the side netting. So there's those things, but she's obviously an amazing talent. She's obviously one for the future as well that I think really jumps out to me as probably if we were to pick any A-League women players that were going to crash the party at this late stage, it would be someone like her. Well, Joey, great to chat. You are the best in the business when it comes to the victory, never mind the fact that, as you like to point out, you are the only uh, one in the business at the minute, uh, but comprehensive as always and very exciting time uh, for our national teams as well. So thank you very much. No, thanks for having me. Joey Lynch there. You'll find his column inches in ESPN and The Guardian, among other places. Stick around. On the other side of the break, Rob will be back. Rob Gilbert and Rob Tanner. Hey, guys. You know Easter is only just around the corner? This shouldn't be. So it's time to get hopping for your gourmet goodies and sweet treats with a little help from Hoyt's. Spice up those hot cross buns with Hoyt's ground cinnamon, nutmeg, ginger, cloves, or allspice. You can make your hot cross buns at home, you know. Just, Willem, you could do that. How good are hot cross buns? Oh, they are awesome. I like to toast them. And I like them fresh, but you've got to have plenty of butter on them. Add Hoyt's lemon pepper or dried parsley leaves to your Good Friday fish dish. And here's some Sunday roast lamb inspiration. You can make a really tasty rub by mixing together Hoyt's smoked paprika, thyme and basil leaves, ground cumin and curry powder. Mild or hot, it's up to you. And don't forget the mint sauce. Make your own with Hoyt's mint leaves. Do you like mint sauce with your lamb, Willem, or are you your sort of, sort of more spicy kind of guy? Uh, no, it's all sounding pretty good, i got to say, Rob. I'm, uh, I'm getting hungry. Mm. Mm. Uh, Excellent. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing Edge coming home in a couple of weeks. We are going to eat up a treat. Yeah, well, I'll put it on the web of barbecue. Don't worry about that. You can also fill your empty spice jars with Hoyt's value packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's at Coles, Woolworths, and good independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, anybody who's been with us since the 2015-16 season will know that we have a soft spot in our heart for Leicester City. And we, we watch their ups and downs with very close attention because one of the very first international guests who backed us and kept on coming to join us uh, was, of course, and is Rob Tanner, then of the Leicester Mercury, now of The Athletic. And we are, at the same time, um, watching this relegation battle that the Foxes are in at the very same time that we've got an Aussie back in the Premier League. Um, Harry Suter obviously uh, is the man that I'm talking about and and he was a guy that was, uh, well, if not the best, then close to one of the best on the park on the weekend. And uh, Rob Tanner, uh, we welcome you back to the show, mate. I guess uh, it sounds like a bit of an indulgence to, to start off the, the line of questioning with Harry Suter, but it is fair to say that um, uh, I think you used uh, the the word immense to describe him, not just in defence, but in attack as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, his, certainly his best performance, uh, and it needed to be. 
um, at Brentford. They're a side that are very strong on set pieces. They like to get the ball in the box at every opportunity. You know, you need somebody in there who's going to be commanding. And defensively, they've been poor all season. They've conceded far too many goals. I mean, I mean, I think before the, the weekend, they'd scored as many goals as Newcastle, who were fifth in the table. But there, were, there was only a couple of teams that conceded more. And it was pretty obvious where the problem lay. Um, so Harry's uh, arrival, if they can just um, find a, a, a partner for him that's um, of that similar level, then they could be OK um, moving forward. But Harry's performance was, was really encouraging. As I said in the article, um, defensively, everything that came in the box, he headed away, he cleared. But only not only that, he can play. He, he can get on the ball. He can play progressive passes. He can play uh, through the lines. And what I liked as well was in the second half... Um, they had a period of pressure when they had some set pieces and he just stayed up there. Now, Leicester fans have always moaned that there's never a plan B. They've chased a lot of games this season. In fact, that's 11 games on the trot now where they've conceded the first goal. And that's the first time this season where they've been behind at half-time where they've come back in the second half and got something out of it. And now, fans have always said, well, we Brendan Rodgers doesn't have a plan B. You know, when we're really desperate, he just keeps forward in your head with the same style of play, you know, the patient passing around the back and that that re- that urgency seems to be lacking sometimes and the fans get really frustrated with that. But Harry stayed up there and was a real thorn in the side uh, for Brentford and I put it to to Bren- Brendan afterwards, I said uh, you know, in, in the if you're chasing a game the last five minutes or so, would you consider throwing Harry up there and just being direct, going route one and just seeing what happens and he went, yeah. And I thought he'd never, that would never be in Brendan's playbook to do that but you, you can't deny the fact that, you know, he, he is a physical presence, six foot six. But not only that, there was a moment when, at which um, Brenda referred to his David Villa moment, where uh, he, he was um, trying to jink in between two or three defenders and get a shot off as well. So he can play the big lad. Yeah, we've had, um, obviously, the chance to see um, a lot of his, his efforts and, and in, a, in an era where we, you know, we're well past that golden ge- generation of the mid-2000s when we had the likes of Mark Viduka, Harry Kuehl, uh, Mark Schwarzer, Ed Al in, in, in our national side, that uh, a player like Harry, with that physical presence, as you say, and that ability to actually play with the ball at his feet um, at both ends of the park is uh, is a, and has been a real key and uh, was a, a massive um, uh, player for Australia in our uh, run to the knockout stages of the, the recent World Cup. But before we move on from Harry uh, to the broader picture around Leicester, uh, the, the fan reception uh, of Harry, it seems to have, just watching the games to have been uh, a, a pretty quick adoption of him as, uh, as, as already a favourite son of the Foxes in just a handful of games so far. Yes, absolutely. Because he, you know, he's a, he's a character. He looks like he's a bit of a leader. He looks like, you know, he's taken on board um, the seriousness of the situation as well. Um, but I think they seen him a bit of Robert Huth, uh, that you know, die-hard sort of defensive outlook. You know, anything that comes in the box, I will, I will attack. I won't be adverse to taking a, a striker out once or twice as well to stop the goal. Um, so I think they see that commitment in him. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm not surprised they've already got a song for him. Um, Rob, um, all Australians now that Harry Suits is playing there have got an increased focus on Leicester and it wasn't, um, lost on me that the goalkeeping situation, there was a big change ahead of the Brentford game. Um, that is a big decision for a coach to make. Can you just talk us through what you think Brendan Rogers went through before replacing his first 
string goalkeeper for such a huge game and and what's it sort of mean for the the club um you know and this important run into the the last few games and the relegation battle yeah um, and it's an interesting sort of picture around the goalkeeping situation at Leicester. I mean, Casper Smeichel was coming into the last year of his contract. Uh, he did an interview with the Times where he said he didn't want to leave. Brenda told us that he came to him and said, look, I've had this offer from Nice. I want to try something different before my career finishes. So there's a bit of a, a different story being told from the two parties there. But inevitably, he left um, when that was the case. And Leicester didn't have the finances at the time to bring in a replacement. And I think Brendan would like to have brought in a senior replacement. But um, having been at the club for four years without making his debut until the uh, the Watford game at the end of last season, um, I think Brendan decided that Danny Ward, um, they spent £12 million on him. So he deserved his chance to be the number one. Um, and now I don't think he's made a lot of errors this season. I don't think there's too many howlers. I remember he dropped one at Arsenal that uh, ended up in the back of the net. But um, obviously the goals have been raining in and he hasn't looked convincing at times, I'd say. Um, it, when those one-on-one situations that Casper would come out and make himself look huge um, and invariably he would pull off some great saves that would save the team, Danny doesn't make those saves. And I think we'd, I did a piece um, last week where we looked at the stats of how many goals he should have judged on, the, the, the chances that he faced that he should have saved. And he should have saved about five more goals than than have been conceded this season. And now I had an inkling that um, Brendan was thinking of having a change because he's got Danny Iverson in the young Dane. He's a great um, shot stopper, big physical presence, not the best with his the ball at his feet. And Brendan likes his goalkeepers to be able to play out from the back. Uh, and Danny can, Danny Ward can. But um, Danny Iverson, um, yeah, he's a, he's he's just a, a fresh outlook. Um, he, he's had some good performances in the Cup. Um, he's had a great loan at Preston, where he was arguably their player of the season. So um, he decided to go with him for, for this one. I wasn't surprised when I saw the team sheet that um, he'd made that change. Because, as I said, I was getting the feel that he was starting to lose a little bit of patience with with Danny Ward. But I have to say, I feel a little bit for Danny Ward because defending in front of him hasn't been brilliant this season. There's been four own goals. Uh, he's had to face three penalties. Um, and and the, the the midfield, I mean, the, the classic one I, I refer to is the Havertz goal um, for Chelsea. Um, when Enzo had the ball, there was about three or four or five seconds before anybody closed him down. He had all the time in the world to pick a pass. He just lofted a pass over the top. Nobody picked up Havertz's run. And it's in the back of the net. Now that's not a goalkeeper's fault. You know, you, you you defend from the front to the back, and at times Leicester have been found wanting in that department as well. But he's made the change. Let's see if it. It's the last card really he could play, in my opinion. He's changed everything else. He's changed formation. He's changed personnel. Now he's changed his goalkeeper. Let's see if it has some sort of uh, impact after the international break. Rob, okay, um, we'll just ask you to make a prediction. When you look at all of the clubs that are in that relegation fight now, Leicester is well and surely one of those. What is your assessment of Leicester's prospects of staying out of the bottom three? Well, they've still got uh, six sides that are in and around them uh, to play. So those will be the key. Um, they should have enough quality. Uh, they've been creating chances. They haven't been taking them. It's the, been the big problem. And he's he's rotated Inacho, Vardy, Dakar on, on Saturday at Brentford. Um, they've got to take those chances and... Um, 
and then obviously Harry Suter is going to be key. Walt Fars comes back. It's a blow that Johnny Evans has picked up another injury. But Ricardo Pereira's back. Tielemans is coming back. Uh, Victor Christensen, the left back's back. So if they get they keep their players fit uh, and they keep James Madison, Harvey Barnes fit, then they they could be three worse sides than them, uh, and they could survive. But it, I just warned several times I've warned against complacency because you're not taking your chances, you're conceding goals, you can't keep clean sheets, you're picking up injuries. These are all recipes for relegation. Um, but I think the pennies drop with them now. I think they're only a point above the relegation zone. West Ham got a game in hand, so they know the severity of the situation. But as I said, it's still in their hands if they can win those six games against the sides in and around them. Well, we'll be watching very closely now. The last one from me, it would be remiss of me. Uh, for those uh, regular listeners to Box the Box, they know that Derek Dyson, the former ITN pundit, normally is in these European interviews, but he's um, his son, his second child, was born on the weekend, and um, he named his son Henry Patrick because he's an Arsenal fan. Now, I'm just wondering in years to come, as Derek is enjoying um, a barbecue out at the Hillsville Sanctuary, as we say, and he says to his son, uh, you were born in an Arsenal championship year. Do you think Arsenal can um, can do it? They've met, they're meeting every challenge that seems to come their way at the moment. Um, it's an exciting uh, prospect for Arsenal fans, but uh, more so um, that young list. And uh, I'm just wondering, what's your view, um, covering Leicester on the beat, as you look down to... London and Arsenal's performances, can they do it? Yes, absolutely. They've stood the course. They haven't shown any signs of faltering. They've got a good cushion now on Man City. We assume Man City will win their game in hand. I mean, that's still five points, though. So that's a lot for, for Man City to claw back now. So it's very much in their own hands. And um, I, I, I watched them, uh, well, I watched the highlights yesterday uh, against Palace and they're still scoring goals. They're still creating chances. They don't look like a side that is going to get nervous in this situation. I mean, obviously, it's unfamiliar for many of them. They are an unexpected challenger for the title. We all thought it would be Man City, Liverpool and, and Chelsea with the money they've spent going for it this season. But Arsenal, I mean, having start the start to the season they had last year, it's an incredible story again. Um, the way they turned that around, we all thought Arteta was going to get sacked. They were... They were desperate to start that uh, last season, but um, this season they've just been phenomenal. They've got a lovely balance to the team. They've got aggression in them. Uh, Saka um, and Martinelli are contributing from the wide areas. Gabriel Jesus is back as well. That's really important for them. And defensively, they look solid. So they've got all the ingredients of uh, of winning the title this season. I think I think he'll be able to celebrate on two levels being, you know, the birth of his son and Arsenal winning the title. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I wouldn't I'd, um, I wouldn't have expected anything less than Edge to slip one in there as uh, Derek's at home probably lying in his uh, pillow uh, after having changed uh, his, his umpteenth amount of nappies and, and enjoying uh, a, a pundit's prediction from afar, mate. Uh, so while you're on the predictions, uh, the uh, you know just back to Leicester for a moment. Do, do you think they'll survive? I mean, of the next nine points, um, the um, the run uh, into what is going to be a, a date with destiny against Manchester City is uh, is Palace, uh, Villa, 
and uh, Bournemouth. So uh, of uh, those nine points for a team that uh, that gathered very few points after the World Cup break, I think seven from 33 available uh, after the uh, the competition resumed. Uh, th- this is that make or break period really, isn't it? It's these next nine points. And what's, what's the minimum scenario uh, ahead of that um, that fourth match of, of the next four uh, that they play against City that they need to gather if uh, if they're going to be a hope. You, you've got to get back-to-back wins in a, in a relegation uh, battle because it puts pressure on everybody else. Those two home games against Villa and Bournemouth will be absolutely huge. They're not being very good at King Power. They've been, they're, their away record has been on a par, if not better, than their home form. Um, so, that, But as I said, those they've got games against Palace, Bournemouth, Wolves, Leeds, Everton. Uh, and then they finish at home to West Ham. That could potentially be a huge, huge game. So um, those are the games they will be targeting. But it's been feast or famine with Leicester this season. Um, before the September international break, they picked up one point from seven. Then they went on a great run up until the World Cup. Since the World Cup had come back, they got those back-to-back wins against Villa and Tottenham. Uh, but since then, it's been a terrible run. I wouldn't put it past them to come back from this international break and go on a little run and, and get some points on the board and sort of ease everybody's nervousness around the place. But still, you know, it's it, it they've got to knuckle down. Um, this is a side in transition. There's players out of form, players injured. It's been difficult for them. Inevitably, they're going to lose the likes of Madison, possibly even Harvey Barnes as well in the summer. They've got eight players out of contract as well. So there's going to be massive change at Leicester over the coming months. Um, but I just hope they will be planning for uh, a Premier League campaign rather than a championship one. Excellent. Rob, always fantastic to have you on the show, mate. Um, and uh, we wish, I know, uh, as a bloke who follows the beat and having followed different clubs over my journey covering uh, various sports, that you, you do become attached, whether they're the team of your personal passion, you you know, you really uh, get tied into to their destiny. So, uh, so good luck uh, for uh, the, the next uh, few months and, and hopefully they'll survive and uh, and we will be continuing to talk to you about uh, the Foxes in the Premier League. Thanks a lot, Rob. No worries, Rob Tanner from The Athletic. If you haven't subscribed already, make sure you do. It's uh, the best publication, the best sporting publication there is for all-round sport. And if you're a football fan and you haven't subscribed already, uh, then you need to do yourself a favour and uh, and get that subscription as quick as you possibly can get it done because then you'll be able to enjoy Rob's written work as well as tuning into him on Box to Box. Okay, stick around after the break. World Cup corner. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chatting to our good mate Rob Tanner just now. Hopefully the Foxes can manage to escape this relegation battle and Harry Sutar's time in the Premier League will continue. But before we wrap up the show this week, it's time for World Cup Corner. Willem, you've always uh, got a, a few good angles that we haven't touched on throughout the show as we uh, count down the days to the Women's World Cup uh, in more, a little over four months' time. Yeah, we were Congress heavy uh, in News 1, Rob, but there's more, and this is the one that we've held uh, over until World Cup Corner. And this top story uh, relates to the Men's World Cup. It is the final tournament structure for the 2026 edition. Uh, it's going to conclude with a final on July 19, 2026. But the main news initially, as we knew, the tournament was going to be 16 groups of three. Instead, we're going to have 12 groups of four. So the top two from each of those 12 groups and the eight 
best third place teams are going to progress to the round of 32. So there's going to be some quick maths on the go to sum up which side sits eighth of the uh, the best third place teams and so which sits ninth. Uh, not insignificant edge, the rise in matches, 64 to 108. That is some headline, isn't it? Um, that is a massive increase in matches and obviously um, a bit of a windfall for all of the uh, pre-approved uh, states and cities in the USA, Canada and Mexico uh, that will be hosting the edition in 2026. But uh, what I really found interesting, Willem, was um, where the extra teams are effectively coming from. And, um, you know, what's significant is that the big winners out of this are going to be Asia, Africa, CONCACAF in particular. And it is a real um, uh, casting the net into the emergence of these uh, confederations as real contenders at World Cups. We saw Morocco's great run, didn't we, uh, in 2022 in Qatar and the significance of that and these new emerging markets. And obviously, you know, the, the financial power of the Middle East, uh, Africa's emergence um, financially as well, means that the, these uh, new teams, and just in the context of Southeast Asia, um, you know, I can speak with a relative authority about the impact of a Thailand or a Vietnam or a Malaysia making the World Cup for the very first time. It would just be absolutely enormous. So I'm really excited about it. It is confronting when you think that uh, in 2026, 104 matches is more than the 19, 30, 34, 38, 50 and 54 World Cups putting all together, <laughs> which was 101 matches. So it is a major expansion and there's probably going to be maybe some some blowouts in World Cup games, um, some of the lesser teams. But I, I just think that the impact in Africa, in Asia and CONCACAF of these um, expanded uh, the expanded World Cup is going to be phenomenal and we shouldn't underestimate that. So, look, the World Cup's expanded twice before in its history from 16 and then to 24, then 32 teams. So so I think this is a, a monumental a monumental shift. It's obviously a lot to get your head around, but I'm genuinely excited for um, the emerging, emerging federations. Rob, in light of what edges just said, I love the 32-team tournament. I thought it was nice and tidy, symmetrical, made sort of logical sense. I don't love the uh, the third-place finishes going through. But at the same time, uh, there would have been people who would have rallied against the 16-24 to 24 and the 24-32 to 32, um, increase. And as you said in our group chat during the week, uh, human nature stipulates that you can't halt progress. No, that's exactly right. And uh, anyone who's listened to my thoughts on the subject over the time that this uh, expansion has, has been considered would know that I'm a, a huge advocate for it. One of the things that uh, I'll be interested in, in observing is the the patronising, condescending uh, uh, commentary around the expansion by the, the Euro snob media, uh, which I don't know that you guys would have seen a lot of during the last World Cup, but listening to a lot of podcasts and reading a lot of international copy while you guys were over there, uh, particularly in in, in the, 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 the pre-tournament stage before some of the upsets occurred, there, there was a, a lot of uh, uh, suggestion that, that the uh, lesser Asian sides in inverted commas uh, in particular didn't deserve to be there. Uh, then we saw some of the great upsets, of course. We saw Australia's run. We saw Saudi Arabia, of course, um, famously uh, uh, beating Argentina, the ultimate winner. So 
I love the idea that it's expanding. Yep, Edge, I think your point's well made about the uh, the, the potential lack of jeopardy with some of the uh, the groups where the third place will go through. But I think we'll just see a trickle-down effect from what we saw and have seen in recent tournaments that uh, that, that match for the third place might be the one that uh, that is the the uh, the exciting match that replaces what we saw in the most recent tournaments uh, uh, and, and and as you have you know so often described on this show from your own personal experience and some of the vision that we've seen the passion of the Asian football nations and the reaction that we'll see when some of those uh, countries actually make the tournament will be uh, just the same as, as when we broke through in, in 2005 after that um, that long drought that we had. And to close, to get uh, to 48 teams for the next cycle from 2026 to 2030, FIFA uh, have made changes to the men's international match calendar. Uh, it's going to be much the same through March and June, two-day windows. Uh, the change comes in the late September, early October window. Uh, that is going to go from a two-match window to a 16-day four-match window that kicks in uh, in September 2026, so post the next World Cup. Uh, Michael, what flexibility uh, does that allow in the in the international calendar? Oh, I think this is terribly exciting because you just think about... Um, well, I've always felt that the impact on the players of the international match calendars, in particular the South American players and the, um, the Asian players who have to travel a lot from Europe um, uh, backwards and forwards. So that obviously is an impact in one less travel movement for them. But, yeah, what an exciting uh, four-match international window late in a qualification campaign. Just imagine the Australians, the Socceroos, you know, playing in, you know, um, Japan and Vietnam on the way to hosting Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Iran in, uh, in Australia. I could just imagine the build-up and the, the, the media focus and uh, just the entire momentum behind um, a four-match window. I'm terribly, terribly excited about that. And one of my personal sort of, uh, uh, well, let's say excitement meter uh, rankings is around some of those countries that that constantly just miss out because there's such a large group of countries that are above them that they they get uh, a couple of good results during qualifying, but they never seem to get there. And uh, I'm talking of uh, the nation of the birth of my dear mother, Lebanon, uh, who are a a rising force in Middle Eastern football. But because there are so many countries that are just above them, they just seem to miss out all the time. And and I'm using that as a personal example, but there are a lot of examples around the world of countries in Europe, in South America, less so. Uh, But, um, and, and and of course, in Asia, um, that uh, they just never get a, a seat at the big table. So, uh, really looking forward to that, boys. I thought you were going to say Italy there, Rob, but that's the uh, that's, <laughs> yes, that's on your wife's side, not your mum. <laughs> Touche. Well done. Mic drop. Willem van Dendren. Well done. All right, boys. So I think we're going to wrap it up there. If you need more stoppage, more box to box, tune into stoppage time later on the week. Make sure you subscribe to box to box stoppage time offside. We do ask every week. And if you think I'm talking about you, yes, I am talking about you. That person who is listening right now to what I'm saying, if you just tap that five star rating, give us a, a lovely rating. It does really help with the rankings and help spread the word of, uh, of the work that we're, we're doing on box to box. Make sure you tweet us at box to box nts if you've got something to say follow us on twitter of course make sure you like us on facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game